welcome to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. And later on, we have quite the treat for you. Uh, well, I'm excited about it because our friend uh, Mark Tara, the host of, I believe, uh, Rainbow Country, okay. uh, which is also available. You can find it online. It's syndicated on a lot of stations. Um, and I believe it is uh, hosted primarily out of CIUT in Toronto. A lot of people mm-hmm. are listening to us now on CIUT. And uh, yeah, so Rainbow Country, great track. It's an 11, uh, 11 o'clock at night to midnight uh, pro to 1 p.m. program. Uh, Mark Tara blends music and interviews, uh, giving voice to the LGBT community, another great program. But Mark Tara has shared with us two fantastic interviews uh, that were done with the Toronto International Film F- Festival, mm-hmm. including Rosie, the feature film of Miti writer-director uh, and actor Gail Maurice. Uh, there's a bunch of interviews with different creators from that film. Um, and then also we have from Mark Tara interviews with the creators behind The People's Joker. Now, some people may have seen The People's Joker in the news as it actually got pulled from TIFF. Mm-hmm. Um, over uh, copyright uh, concerns, yes, uh, I think was the 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 obtuse way it's being phrased. But the interview does a good job of exploring the the behind the the meaning of the film, and we encourage everyone to check it out. And we'll be playing that interview just after this. But before then, we do have a couple of stories that we wanted to share with our audience before handing it over to Mark Tara and those two film reviews, yes. starting with a court decision out of Calgary, Alberta, where a gentleman uh, who I believe was in his uh, 44s, um, in his 44s, is 44, that's the word I was looking for, um, (laughs) has been sentenced to two years in prison for essentially tricking his partner into sex without a condom. Mm -hmm. Now, we were talking about this before the break, and it was a bit of a push and pull between the prosecutor, defense, and judge around this is really serious i mean it's it, it straight up it was sexual assault yeah and you know the the individual that was the victim in this case uh closeted gay man was incredibly terrified has mm-hmm. been highly psychologically impacted by the sexual assault mm-hmm. um and uh, essentially agreed to a set of conditions including the use of the condom yep. and the other guy um has been on a downward spiral i mean of mental yeah. health addictions um and and essentially tricked the person into not using it. I mean, I'm sure the audience can fill in the blanks. There's probably a dozen ways to interpret it, and each of them are illegal, where if one person says not without a condom and the other one has sex without a condom, the how that plays out, there, there's no pleasant way of that you know, panning out and it would no, be a no, I mean, sexual assault. Yeah, it is sexual assault anyway. Yeah. But it was interesting because the prosecution, the crown essentially wanted four year prison term. They wanted to really make this abundantly clear to the gay mm-hmm. community that forcing or tricking somebody into sex without a condom is a crime uh, punishable up by up to four years. So they wanted to just really emphasize the point. The judge 
with the particulars of this case yeah. uh, and the fact that uh, the, the 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 perpetrator was incredibly remorseful, realized that they'd hit the bottom of the bottom in their downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in return, there's a two-year sentence and a lot of probation. Um, but that was the balance the judge took kind of with that eye towards the particularity of this case. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not often we hear male sexual assault stories reaching the news. And well, I think it's, it's always worth commenting. Yeah, it's, it's two things at the same time. Uh, a lot of LGBT victims of sexual assaults uh, don't see justice. And a lot of men who are victims of sexual assaults don't see justice. Uh, so seeing both of them at the same time in the crowd saying, we, we have to take this seriously for both of those things that we need to turn around the, the, the arc of history and, and get people to pay attention a little bit more. Because I remember years ago, Terry Crews came out saying that he was sexually assaulted. And everyone was like, if you don't name names, nothing will happen. And I think, I mean, you have to be brave to say that it happened. And you have to be even braver to name names because then you have to go to court for it. So I think mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a very big deal for the future of uh, the Canadian legal system. And I think it's very, uh, I don't want to say positive, but I, I'm optimistic about the future. There you go. Um, that the Crown is willing to take these kinds of cases seriously now where historically they did not. It's it's a good change. Yeah. yeah. So we have talked about uh, Serbia and Europride. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole bunch of stories in the run-up to Europride, which was just this past Sunday. Right. Uh, sorry, this past Saturday. And essentially, uh, Europride and the, the Pride Belgrade were essentially saying, like, look, the fact that the president has decided that for tension with other people is mm-hmm. the reason why they're going to cancel the parade. Um, you know, all of this has generated so much publicity that really highlights the state of LGBT rights in Serbia. Like yep. if anything, this abrupt decision by the government has turned a spotlight. And then Europride was beginning the process of taking legal action against the Serbian government. Right. Uh, it was initially a decision by, I think, uh, Aleksandr Vucic, mm-hmm. the president of uh, Serbia. Now, this is where, and we, we don't mention her very much, but this is where the openly gay, first openly gay, uh, I think, politician, let alone prime minister of Serbia, has come in uh, at, the, at the 11th hour to almost save the day. And it's uh, Anna Branovic um, has essentially issued a notice. Oh, she did, because this did happen. Issued a notice where over 5,000 extra police were drafted into Belgrade mm-hmm. to line the streets. You know, and because I think everyone was aware anti-gay protesters had planned to cause trouble. Yep. And that was part of the reason why they'd uh, cancelled it initially, one of the, the reasons. But mm-hmm. uh, the Prime Minister's stance here is like, look, you know, maybe we need to actually police this mm-hmm. um, and make it happen. 64 anti-gay police uh, um, uh, militants is how they've been described by uh, one, one journalist. Um, mm. were arrested by the Serbian police uh, during the during the parade. I think they were essentially protesters, but they were obviously doing something a bit more than protesting to be arrested. Um, but yeah, some 10 officers received minor injuries during scuffles between oh. uh, the police and the anti-LGBT protesters. 
I do not believe any uh, LGBT pride marches were uh, harmed in this. Okay. Um, yeah, they would have. They were going to march with or without the police, and that's very much what they did. So, a bit of an update and a conclusion. So that's uh, the end of the first segment. Uh, next up, we have Mark Tara's incredible interview uh, with the creators of Rosie, uh, one of the films at the Toronto International Film Festival. We are playing here now, Used for Love by Mint Simon. Then after Rosie, there is the track, Born to Die in Berlin by We Should Have Been Plumbers. If you let me down
I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful that you joined us. Well, stop till you get enough. Hello, Toronto. Happy Halloween, Michael. Which of the best Toronto, the best of them all. I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday and what we have on the screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you, thank you for coming! Gail Maurice, hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm fantastic, and you? I am well, I am well. Melanie Bray. C'est moi. Bonjour, comment ça va? Ça va bien, merci. Ah, bon. <laughs> Girl, that's all you're going to get from me. Okay, I loved it. I loved every minute. Thank you both for being here, to have your voices, your stories be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you for that, especially to talk about um, a new Canadian movie, Rosie. First of all, well done. Well done. I think it's fair to say it's no easy task to get a feature-length film made, let alone in Canada. So hats off. So Gail, you you wrote this movie, you directed this movie. Talk to me about the story that you're telling in Rosie. What's this story all about? Okay. I, <clears throat> I also produced it and co-produced it. Melanie yes. is my co-producer yes. and Jamie Manning as well. Uh, so the story t- for me is about uh, love, resilience, strength, and chosen family. But it's also about um, the undercurrent and the uh, repercussions of what uh, the effects are of the 60 scoop. Because Rosie's mom was uh, a product of the 60 scoop. And it's um, people today... And I, I also have siblings that were um, taken away from my mother's breast, ripped, ripped from my mother's breast without, um, without her consent. And it's for those uh, fighters out there that are doing the best they can, <clears throat> even if they'll never, um, n- you know, they were, um, the choice of finding out who they are was taken away from them. So um, it's uh, uh, honor, honoring their strength and their resilience and their, um, you know, survive, survival. And so Rosie is such a, a strong little girl. She's only six years old. And uh, she changes, changes the lives of uh, Flo, Fred, and Mo. So um, the story to me is about um, strength, r- yeah, resilience, and chosen family. Mm. Yeah. Well said, well said. Melanie, you co-star in this. You, what, you co-produced Rosie. From your perspective, for yourself, this film is about what? Hmm. I mean, one of the big themes, Gail is 
uh, I always say what I really appreciate about her work and her writing is it's so full of symbolism and metaphor. And I mean, the theme here is really about um, sort of people that society sees as throwaways, um, misfits, miscreants. No, <laughs> I don't even know what that word really means. Um, but um, no, in all seriousness, you know, people who are just um, on the fringes of society um, that people might think of as disposable. Um, so we have all these beautiful themes of, of, we like to say, glitter in the garbage or treasure in the trash for a little alliteration too. Um, so, you know, Fred makes, my character Frédéric Fred makes art out of found objects, out of things people have thrown away. She makes, you know, what she considers to be beauty out of it, makes art. Um, She's inspired by it, and you know we sleep in a scrapyard at one point. But what? In a Volkswagen. In an, in an old <laughs> Volkswagen, yeah. You know, and Fred feels like, oh, okay, this might be a low moment, but for Rosie, the child, who, you know, it's she fun. she sees it as yeah, this yeah. you know amazing place. And I don't know if we, you can quite see it on film, but I mean, the whole ground glitters from all the broken glass from all the cars. So again, there's there's glitter in this scrappy, strange place. Um, so it's about um, basically the beauty in, in everyone. And, you know, yes, we're all flawed, but we also have something to offer. Mm-hmm. Gail, this movie is set in, in the 80s mm-hmm. in Montreal. Why that location? Why that time frame? So the 80s was a uh, time when I came out. Uh, I, I left my uh, village uh, in northern Saskatchewan, the population 700, so I was not exposed to gay culture or anyone who was gay. So I didn't really know that I was uh, uh, gay. I had no. I, 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 I had never been with a, ma- a boy. And so, but I, I, I just didn't want to be, I didn't, and I was wondering, you know, what's wrong with me? Because all my girlfriends were like having all these boyfriends and I didn't care. And then I went to Saskatoon and all of a sudden, um, I, I started hearing gay, gay, gay. Oh, that guy's gay. And I go, Ooh, I wonder. So then I approached him. I said, I think I might be bisexual. You know, it's like, even though I'd never been with a guy, but, um, so yeah, so he took me to my very first gay bar and we went, had to go down a dark alley, open up like doors and, and show number. It's called numbers. And we had ID and show numbers and then they buzzed you in. And as soon as I got buzzed in, all of a sudden the music went, and my whole life is like the world <gasps> opened up yes the world opened up mm-hmm. and I saw oh my god fuck this is what this is what's this is like what I've been waiting for all my life mm-hmm. this is why I couldn't go with men I, it's like I, I saw all these beautiful people all these like oh my god like and that's why I created like Rosie in the 80s because to me like it's it's saturated it and the characters are Flo and Mo and Fred they're so unabashedly themselves they let their bodies hang they and, and their beautiful bodies hang they let themselves like they're, they're they just walk and strut the streets and you know whatever life throws at them they they, they say oh is that all you got come on give it to me give it me you know whatever you whatever you throw at me i'm gonna take it and i'm gonna i'm gonna freaking use that and 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 survive and thrive so that's why i wrote it in the 80s because that during that time i came out and i was like i i I was i was strong and it was like it the whole world was uh, such a, a beautiful magical brilliant place for me and i 
placed it in Montreal because um, I want uh, put m- themes in my films are about identity, alienation, and family. So I wanted Rosie, who speaks English, to be in a place that um, is I- she's isolated and more alone because she doesn't speak speak French. And then the characters uh, like her aunt and Flo and Mo have accents, so. It, further alienates her the signage is all french so i wanted her to be thrust into this world that's so foreign to her but at the same time it shows the resilience of a child and the resilience of human beings but also and yeah so and i'm talking about uh, all these things but also i I made a bilingual film i don't speak french so i i I was able to direct a a film in french but french is part of my language which is michif so it's half korean half french and not a lot of people in canada in the world know about michif and the metis people and there's only a thousand a little over a thousand speakers in the world and i'm one of them so i and i wanted to be able to uh speak about that and it's it's fluent in me and my culture is alive in me my language is part of who I am and I wanted uh, to express that French is part of my culture it's part of my language and there's always going to be Cree and Michif in my la- in my in my films as well yeah well said well said Thank you. Melanie for yourself how did you come on board with this project with with Rosie it's all Gail's fault <laughs> <laughs> um, well Gail and I are partners in in life like okay um, so it's a personal, <laughs> a personal and professional relationship. Um, so it sort of happened by accident. I mean, Gail, uh, we're both actors, and then Gail obviously is a writer director. I studied producing, so I knew a lot about behind the scenes, and um, I basically co-produced two of her short films with her. Um, and initially, it was like, I'm just going to help you out a little bit until you find a producer, and then I ended up just being her co-producer. Um, so that was our first short. Um, which is called Asini. And then we made a short short version of Rosie. And again, it was like, she's like, well, I wrote you a part and you're not going to produce. And I said, well, let me just get the ball rolling and I want to be the casting director at least. And, and, you know, let me help you with this. Let me help you. And the next thing you know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm co-producing this. <laughs> so then that's what happened there. Um, so, you know, naturally when she wrote the feature, I still, you know, I've, I've been living and breathing this universe with her from the beginning. Um, and I still wanted to have um, and be part of that creative process. So, um, so I was a co-producer on the feature as well. Hmm. Okay, so this next question is, f- is for the, the two of you. I don't know who wants to go first, but here's the question. And it's about the importance of diversity in film. Maybe even Canadian film. I think that this, for me, this 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 movie has uh, a diverse cast. You've got uh, Métis characters, you've got LGBT characters. Gail, for yourself, why was it important to have a diverse cast in Rosie? Why was this important for you? I didn't... Um... Or was it important? Yeah, um... Was it just the way that it, it naturally came yeah, about? It's 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 my it's my world and mm-hmm. um, it's just those are the people that are in my world. So I wanted to the people in your neighborhood. Yeah, the people <laughs> in my neighborhood. You know, it's the people around that you meet me. when yeah. you're walking down the street. You know, exactly <laughs> right. And it's like it's 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 my life. So. Um, I, and I write from, um, you know, we all write from a personal space, and um, there's a little bit of me in all my characters. 
like Rosie represents m me um, when I came out and also um, the innocence and the uh, the wonder I saw the world in and yeah it's I didn't even think about it as, as a diverse cast it just I guess I, I, I walk in a world I mean our world is diverse yeah. right so it's just yeah. it's just my world yeah and Melanie, for yourself, why was it important for you to be in a project like Rosie that, at least in my opinion, has a, a very diverse cast? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I had moments where when, when we were casting and, and I was a big part of that, that I almost thought it could be more diverse and usually we're more deliberate about that. But it was really important for Gail and we had a lot of conversations about this, that a lot of the people around Rosie are white because she wanted that feeling of, of alienation and of different for Rosie. Um, so that was an important theme. Um, so that was something that um, I had to consider as a casting director. In general, I think as a white actor, um, as a white producer, um, I am those things and I'm a, a huge champion of diversity in front of the camera as well as behind it. Um, so I question my place within this world a lot. Um, we definitely need more and more diversity in, in all facets of the industry. Um, and I think it's really important as uh, a white person hey, all white people, <laughs> to question if you're ever taking up space that doesn't belong to you um, and where you fit into that. Mm. Can I just add, so yeah, so um, <clears throat> I guess um, I when we were casting, I said I want um, the three adults that she's thr thrust into the lives of to be uh, white-skinned, um, but then the person who um, she feels so connected to as well as Jigger, who's one of my favorite mm -hmm. characters, mm -hmm. and he is the most grounded for me. That's why I shoot him uh, symbolically uh, sitting on the ground, mm -hmm. and he has his culture inside of him. He has the most strength, and he's uh, has uh, knowledge that he passes on to mm -hmm. her, and um, um, so that's that's part of the um, the the journey I wanted uh, like audiences to see is um, that you know it doesn't it doesn't matter who a person is um, it's it's all about connection and yeah I wanted to I wanted to um, um, have Rosie connect with this you know with Jigger in in a way that's going to help her grow and what I love to is like well, I won't. I can't say it because uh, it'll spoil it, the ending where they all support her in learning her culture. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, Gail, yeah. quote, "Fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to make my own films." So I did. Yeah. Unquote. For yourself, when when was that realization? When did you make that that? that connection that I'm going to take the bull by the horns mm -hmm. and tell my story my way. I've been doing this for uh, over 20 years. I've been acting first. And so I think um, at least like 20 years ago, it's like I told my agent, I'm, I'm only auditioning for these roles. I'm only, it's like every, everything is so stereotypical. I'm subservient to men. I, you know, it's like, 
no one can no even today you know i'm still there's still all these stereotypes we just came from uh in conversation with viola davis and uh and gina uh prince bythewood and they're talking about that they're talking about the stereotypes that they fight against and that's what i i was fighting against i told my agent i said I'm, i i i don't want to audition for that role you know and and uh finally um i thought you know what the only way i'm gonna get a role that's not stereotypical is if I write it and I said fuck it fuck it you know I'm gonna start writing and 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 directing my own shorts so I, I directed nine shorts and then it's taken me this long to write uh, to do my first feature film and so there's no stopping me now you know and I'm uh, uh, there's going to be um, my language in my films there's going to be beautiful indigenous strong women you know, it's uh, I, I I did a, a a film called Smudge once as a, a documentary, and it was all women. And then somebody at Sundance, it was at Sundance, and one of the audience members says, "Why um, why are they all just women?" And I didn't even realize. Like I said, "Oh, it's not on purpose. It's just yeah, women to me are powerful, and this is um, you know who I want to represent." But in thinking about Rosie, it's like it's like it's all. Female, you know, and we had a, a very strong female crew, um, you know, and uh, mentorship with Indigenous uh, uh, mentees, um, trying to uh, uplift each other and, and bring more um, Indigenous and BIPOC people into the community, film community. Mm. Yeah. So what's it's? I guess Rosie's on the the film festival circuit now. Once that's done, what is the plan? What's the hope? We hope, yeah, so we're doing the festival circuit, um, we'll do a theatrical, right now we're looking for um, uh, sales, for international sales, so if anyone's out there listening, we need an interna- international sales agent, um, and it's going to be on APTN. And Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Super Channel uh, Fuse? Yeah. Did you say that already? Sorry. No, Super Channel, yeah. Um, yeah, and then in cinemas across Canada, and hopefully the world, and... I keep saying that I we want to be the coda of 2023. <laughs> We're going to oh. be the little underdog, the indie film that uh, captures everyone's heart yeah. and yeah. makes it big. Yeah, yeah. you got to put it out there. You got to dream, and when, you know, you, you know, do. You have to put it out there in the universe. Yeah. the universe always gives back. Speak it into existence. Yeah. My last question for the two of you: When audiences see Rosie, Gail, what do you hope audiences come away with once they've seen Rosie? Um, so, so we had our first screening last night, which was sold out, and most of the people that came up to me were like crying, it's, and 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 they said we we cried, we laughed, and it's it's so it's so poignant, it's so touching, it's so up, uh, like, but it's so hopeful, and I guess I want people to take away um, exactly what what they're feeling. Like I, I I it's the first time I watched it with Melanie with an audience and I, I was I was crying and you know Melanie was crying and uh, the cast was crying but it's it's about um, just I, I, I guess just to me like love is so important you know and we've come through such a dark time with COVID and isolation and, and like not being together you know I wanted to I wanted to do a film that was like had hopeful uh, it wasn't so dark and um you know tri- it was tri- triumphant and but also the show like just the importance of um 
like holding each other up and caring for each other like as a chosen family mm-hmm. yeah and Melanie for yourself what do you hope audiences come away with once they've seen Rosie yeah for me it's always as well to leave with a sense of hope especially after the time we've had the past mm-hmm. few years um, I can't believe like Gail said how many people came up to us last night I swear they so many people said I cried five times mm-hmm. I cried six times <laughs> but they, they did also laugh and at the end of the day just um, yeah feeling hopeful and then um, I always say as well that you know, a lot of the indigenous themes in the film might be a bit more subtle to some people, but I really hope it makes people curious. Um, you know, I'm a huge uh, believer in um, for film being, yes, it's, it's creative and it's entertaining, but I think it's a tool for social change and that's for me the most important thing. So if you went and you were entertained and you cried and you laughed and you left feeling great, that's amazing. And if you left feeling curious about stuff and you want to learn more about it and you go off and do that research, whether it's about the 60s scoop or whatever else happening in the film, then I think we've done a good job. Well said, well said. Melanie, Gail, thank you both for your time. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, whoa, 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 yo. Minute, le petit tigre. Non, 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 non. Hey, 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 ralentis, le petit tigre. Là, tu vas faire mal à quelqu'un. Hey, hey, hey. C'est correct, ma grande? Il n'y a personne qui va te faire mal ici. Hein? <laughs> you speak français? You have big hands. <laughs> oh, my God. God? <laughs> My name is Fred. That's a boy's name. Crata de Rosque. My name is Frédéric, but mes amis they call me Fred. You call me Fred. Fred's still boy's name, and why are they so big? We are very special women <laughs> with big, big with big hands. <coughs> bon, parfait. Euh, là, c'est papy. C'est papy et quoi, un chien? C'est mieux qu'elle soit avec vous. Vous êtes la parenté. Mm-hmm. Your auntie is so excited to take you home. Mm-hmm. Non, 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 non. Fuck you. Ma tante. Ta
Where are you? I'm back in Arkham. Some people call me the space cowboy. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you've been feeling lately? Uh, was I born in the wrong body? What do you see? Some call me the gangster of love. Crane. Ash, little one. You'll be mama's happy little boy in no time. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a Joker. How are you settling into the city? Things are great. I've met a ton of great people, a ton of friends. Have you found work? I'm pursuing a career in stand-up comedy. I'm gonna be a comedian! Hey, screw you, Bane. Here's a pro tip. A lot of good comedy comes from stuff that actually happens to you. It gets good laughs. <laughs> I always thought my life was kind of a tragedy. You were mentally ill. I got you help. You were mentally ill. You I were mentally ill. Ill. You were mentally ill. And um, it is. Let's give a warm round of applause for Joker the Harlequin. Shadow Band Short Ribs. I'm not going to teach you how to be funny today. I'm going to teach you how to be honest. Vera, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am well. I have to say thank you for being here, to have your voice, your story be heard by the, by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you for that, especially to talk about the people's joker. The people's joker, an illegal queer coming-of-age comic book movie, a movie that you wrote, you directed. Talk to me about the story that you're telling within this movie. What's the story that you're telling in The People's Joker? Sure, yeah, it's, um, the movie's very autobiographical. Um, it's about, you know, the logline is it's about an unfunny transgender clown uh, who uh, is named Joker and is addicted to a drug called Smilex. And she um, finds herself and finds love all while uh, starting an illegal comedy theater in, in Gotham City and facing off against a familiar caped crusader. Um, so that's kind of the surface level like synopsis, but within that, it, it really is kind of like this autobiographical story um for me it, you know very loosely based off of my experiences as, as, as a trans woman working in comedy um and coming from the midwest and and all that stuff kind of taking all these these characters that i definitely don't own any of the rights to i'm not sure how this movie's playing a tip um but it is uh so they can't take it back now uh but yeah really transposing my experience uh, onto them so to me this this movie is a a multimedia experience you have live action you have animation you have music so what inspired you to make the people's joker where did 
where did the idea, the concept for this movie come from? I, it was something I was kicking around. Like, like I, I had a version of this um, a few years ago that was really just a handful of like journals that I had written kind of processing the last decade of my life. You know, I jokingly say that I'm the transgender um, Forrest Gump of alternative comedy just because I've like been, I've been involved or like have worked on a lot of like really amazing groundbreaking comedy television in the last 10 years. Like I've been really lucky. I worked on Nathan for you and Eric Andre and I, I came up under Tim and Eric and worked with Sasha Baron Cohen and stuff. And I, I've really been around and have been really fortunate to, to, to work with a lot of cool people. I needed to like really um, just needed to like, kind of like reflect on all that in a lot of ways. So I, I want, I knew I wanted to make a, like, I knew, I don't know that I was necessarily gearing up to make my first film, but I was gearing up to make a pretty long-term project that was going to be about comedy, um, gender, and, and, and confronting like ancestral trauma and, and, and where that all kind of can intersect. And it was right at the start of the pandemic. My friend Bree dared me to re-edit Todd Phillips' Joker. Well, it wasn't a dare. She she commissioned it, actually. It was like an art commission. It was the only time I've ever gotten an art commission, which made me feel special, but it is my friend, so it, maybe it doesn't really count. Um, but that's where the project really stemmed from then, is, you know, I was really earnestly trying to make, at first, an experimental found footage film that was going to use... Batman Forever and, and Joker 2019 and sort of use all that footage to tell a new story. And I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do, but it was impossible and it was going to require me using a lot of footage that I didn't own the rights to. So, yeah, I mean, I sat down with Bree and we, I kind of was like, you know, I really actually think I want to do this. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here adding fart sound effects to Joaquin Phoenix and kind of realizing that, like, maybe I do think of Joker and, and, and Harley Quinn and, and like Batman and stuff as like mythic characters that, you know, you can kind of really genuinely explore queer themes and themes of identity in. And um, Brie was totally on board because like me, you know, the pandemic had just started. We were both unemployed, <laughs> didn't know what to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was really also kind of, that was all to say, where the mixed media approach came in was was we wrote this script and and what we wrote is basically what we shot. I mean, there there was a handful of improv and stuff we like found along did, the way. Did you do the like, animation in the movie? What's that? Did you do the animation in the movie? I, I that's what I was getting at. Is like I I did some of it. Like, but if we really op we opened up the creative process. To, to anybody that wanted to participate. And I had a web series at the time called Hot Topics that I announced this on. And it was like the only time, and I mean, I mean, we didn't go like crazy viral, but I went like soft viral. And, you know, we just put this message out there that was like, it's, you know, we're making, we're making a queer Joker movie and we need artists and animators and filmmakers who like want to contribute. If you just want to make like a cool, fun, weird, Batman movie with us hit us up and we had the most overwhelming response I could have ever imagined like it was it's crazy like over 200 people were just interested in working on it and that's like about how many we ended up 
working with um, from all over the world. Uh, artists and animators and illustrators and musicians and, um, you know, and, and from all different disciplines, you know, like I, I wear a lot of hats, like I do VFX and like I come from animation too, like it's what I studied, but um, every discipline is, is in this movie. We have stop motion and 3D environments and mm-hmm. 2D hand-drawn, um, you know, like it, it, it really, the list goes on. And It's a multimedia um, experience. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you, you just said you have an a background in in visual effects and animation in film production in music video production how did you get into film in the first place it's you know i knew i don't know because i i wanted i wanted to make movies since i was like i was like um awake <laughs> you know like since i was i could remember like i for as long as i could remember i wanted to make movies I knew I was a filmmaker before I knew I was a girl. I, I, I really, I came into, this is my first feature film, but I almost feel like I came into my identity as a filmmaker and, and, and as just an artist in general before ever really figuring out who the fuck I was. And like, I look back at a body of work that is pretty niche um, and pretty like weird and, but like cool. And there's like, stuff in there where I watch it now and I'm like god I was so I'm so trans I am so trans I am so gay and like it was all there it was all there in my art in 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 my art was very like aggressively queer and and but I didn't I didn't have that language for myself a and I also just wasn't comfortable with it so you know like I really film you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so and and being as gay and as trans as I am, it was only inevitable that I become an artist. <laughs> like it really is. Like I I don't know that I really discovered filmmaking or anything. It really was just like you know, my parents had a video camera. It was there, and I needed to survive. And the only place where I really knew how to like safely explore myself growing up was was holding a video camera or. Um, doing sketch comedy and improv or drag. And and now here we are in 2022 with your debut feature, The People's Joker. Okay, 2018, you received an Emmy nomination for your editing work on Showtime's Who is America? Yes. Talk to me about what, what went through your mind the moment you found out that you got an Emmy nomination, 2018. The moment you got that notification, what goes through your mind? I found out actually, like, the morning, it was either like the day after or the morning of, it was so, it was like basically like a day after I had gotten like surgery. I, I, um, Adam's apple shaved down. And so like, I saw, I got a notification and somebody sent me an article saying that we got nominated and I didn't believe it for like 48, like for 48 hours. I just thought I was in some sort of weird, like post anesthesia delusion or something. Cause I don't know. I mean, it's, it's the same way I feel about getting the movie, getting into TIFF. Like I was just talking to Brie about it. Like it feels like we snuck in or something. Like it's, it's like, I don't know. Like I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm, 
I'm from the middle of nowhere, raised by two people that you've never heard of. And like, I just never thought of people like me getting to go to like Emmys or, or film festivals and stuff. And um, yeah, it was, it was sick. I mean, like I would have loved to have won, but like even not winning was kind of cool because like, you know, we didn't win. So we didn't have to speak. And but you got nominated. Got, yeah, we got nominated. And then we got to just dance and like have, have fun in like an open bar. Like it was, it was one of the few times like working in this industry too, that I really did feel like, Ooh, like, Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like normally and I'm just you, like, and you were seen, you were, you were yeah. seen. And I think that that's the most important aspect. Yeah. You, and it really was, it was like, it was my first time because my name change coincided with my Emmy nomination. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like kind of this, this moment of like, really like, okay, this is who I am. Like, I'm not that like shy weird sweaty boy that's just sitting in the the editing bay i'm a beautiful goth princess who Mm. gets nominated for emmys i have two questions left for you and just a a handful of minutes you you are part of the lgbt community you are you are trans i believe you came out in your early 20s talk to me about what led you to come out in your early 20s i actually came out when i was 28 um and, and really, it was just that's that early ish. <laughs> yeah, it's early. You know what? It, the, the lead up to that, my 20s felt so long, by the way. Like, it was a dark time for me. Like, I was, I was, you know, my movie talks about it, you know, pretty metaphorically, but like, I had a drug problem that was pretty rough, and like, I was not a happy person. And it's weird because like coming out really wasn't, it wasn't like, I didn't have like these moments, a big moment of realization. It really was just, I had tried on every single identity at that point. Like I had really tried everything and I had done, you know, I was prescribed and medicated crazy drugs and like, like diagnosis, everything under the sun. And like, it really was just kind of like I ruled out every other possibility and it was just like, Oh, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm trans. And um, yeah, I mean like I didn't really have the support system around me when it, when it started. And I think, you know, that's pretty clear from the movie. Like I, I didn't really have, but I think none of us really do. I, I do think like on some level, the coming out process is a death for queer people. And, and you do, experience loss no matter what and and it it for me it, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing it, it really uh it helped me kind of recalibrate and, and move towards uh just the things that allow me to be authentic i don't know is that a good answer i i never know how to answer yes that. yes <laughs> okay so my last question for you yeah. the people's joker live action animation music there's even an animated erotic scene in, in the movie yeah what what do you hope what do you hope audiences come away with after they've seen your debut feature the people's joker well i i, I don't know i mean that's it's it's a tough question because like i never really set out to like the movie doesn't have like a one message um beyond just like be yourself you know like i really do feel like the movie is kind of simple in a lot of ways um where like it really is just about being true to yourself and and leaning into authenticity and 
pushing through fear because on the other side of fear, there usually is authenticity and, and, and love and stuff. And, you know, I hope people can, can take that away from it. I hope people can see that like the trans experience goes beyond just like fucking conservative talking points and like also goes beyond like just woke scolding and, you know, like it's very unique. There's not a one size fits all approach to any queer person's life. Um, but within that specificity, I hope people can see that like, you know, my experience growing up and figuring out who I was, isn't that different than, 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 you know, uh, a, a cis person's. Um, and I hope people too can see like genre films, you know, are, are a place where you can explore these things. Like if, if we are just now living in a culture where all we make are superhero movies, like we can make superhero movies like this. Like you can make soft queer <laughs> superhero movies. Like anybody can do it. And, and like genre is the perfect place actually to unpack themes because genre allows you to really um, utilize fiction and myth to its fullest potential. Well said, well said. Vera Drew, I have to say thank you so much for your time. Well said, well done and well made. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. That was uh, the interviews with the creators behind The People's Joker from Mark Tara. We have run out of time. <gasps> we'll be playing out with Order by Weary. This is a great track. Gives me the vibe of the Cranberries. Not Cranberries, like the band, the Cranberries. Yeah, yeah. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening.